Uh, you probably know that the world, uh, overall culture, everyone around you, uh, I think is starving for, for, for joy, for lasting happiness, for actual life. Uh, so much so that if you've gone to any kind of uh, library or bookstore, uh, you know there's a big section called the self-help section, and it's very, very popular. Uh, it's always a high seller. We also have things that people have actual jobs in called uh, life coaches, where they coach you about how to have a happy life. They give you encouragement and positivity and how, how to do those things. So the question worth asking today is, how about you? Do you have actual joy? Do you have unending, uncompromised joy in something or someone? That's what we look for. That you should because the Bible commands it. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, to rejoice always. So that's a command. So we are commanded to be joyful. It's a command to rejoice always. Or Psalm 32, verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. So it is our responsibility and our joy as Christians to be joyful. So how do you maintain joy or how do you have actual joy? As you probably know, joy is not bound to your circumstances. It's bound with eternal truth in Christ. Hence the, the great letter of the book of Philippians. I'll give you a quick few words on Philippians here. Uh, it's a, a noteworthy book. It's very short. It's four chapters, but it is rich in doctrine, rich in joy. Uh, it's very pithy. It has lots of verses you probably know that are very well known. And it's such a crucial book for us, I think, this, this summer. Uh, there are 104 verses in Philippians, and joy occurs 16 times in four chapters. So it's encouraging. We can be joyful. However, what's most important is joy is not just thrown out in the book saying, hey, be happy. All right, that's it. It's, it's actually tied to something. So much so that Paul names the name of Christ or Jesus Christ uh, 17 times just in chapter one alone. So joy is not just, it's not just this blob out there that we figure out how to have, it's always bound to Christ, right? So much so that Paul talks about Christ when he talks about joy. So true joy in life is in relationship to knowing Christ and belonging to him. If you're filled with Christ and you, have, you love Christ, every place you are will be joyful. You will have joy in your heart. It's important to know because Paul wrote this letter, maybe you do not know, actually in prison. So the most joyful letter Paul wrote, he was in jail. He was in Acts 28, he was in jail. And we know that because, Christ, because Paul knew Christ, really his prison turned into a palace. Philippians covers big truths and short sentences. If, you, if you're familiar with the book of Romans about justification by faith, how, how someone becomes a Christian, Paul covers the whole, chapter of, the whole book of Romans really in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, if you remember all of 1 Corinthians 15, that long chapter about the resurrection of the dead, Paul covers almost all of that doctrine in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And then if you look at chapter 2, we have the famous, uh, the Carmen Christi, which means the hymn of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's a famous hymn that we think was one of the first hymns ever written about Christ in this time. So it's an exceptional book. Uh, what's most important, however, for you to know is... Where did the church in Philippi get its beginnings? How did this happen? Where did they, did they just pop out of nowhere? Did they just say, hey, one day we'll, we'll be Christians? How did this happen? Well, if you, have, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 16. 
and probably keep uh, a bulletin there or your finger there. We're going to be there later today in the sermon. But in Acts chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 6, we see that Paul and Silas and Timothy were on a missionary journey. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And as they were going, they were actually constrained to go to Philippi. If you look at verse 6, that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia. They wanted to go to Mysia in verse 7, but the Spirit of Jesus did not let them. They wanted to go somewhere else in verse 8. And then Paul has a dream that night in verse 9 to go, a man from Macedonia saying, hey, can you come here? And Macedonia is where Philippi is located. So this was God's intention that Paul and Silas and Timothy, and if you notice in the book of Acts, that at one point it goes from they, 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 to while you start seeing we and we and we. It's after this chapter because Luke joins Paul and his team, and Luke is writing Acts, so you see all these we pronouns in here. Well, now Luke is with them. So you have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke going to Philippi. Philippi was a, if you look at uh, verse 11 and 12, Philippi was a leading city. It was a Roman colony in Macedonia. Uh, it was founded by Philip of Macedonia, who is the, the father of Alexander the Great. So it's a well-known city. This is a, Philippi is a good place to be. It's very Roman. It's about 10,000 people. It's a Roman colony, uh, Luke writes there. And it's important for you to know this because there are no synagogues in Philippi. So when you think about Paul, and Paul would go to a city, the first place he went to was always to the Jews, right? I mean, almost, is, is, there, is there a gathering there? That's where I'm going. Philippi doesn't have one of those. So there's no, there's no hardly any Jewish uh, infiltration. There's no gospel here, and Paul goes. This is significant. The beginnings of church in Philippi are not what you'd expect, as, as we'll cover shortly. But what's good to know and be encouraged is if you look at a global map and you zoom out, Philippi, you zoom out, zoom out. This is the first church in Europe. In case that doesn't ring home for you, we are Christians because the gospel got to Europe. Our forefathers came here from England. So because of Philippi, you heard the gospel. Isn't that encouraging? It's astounding news, right? That we are here in Philippi. Thank God for the gospel. So Paul's first missionary journey is Acts 13 to 14. His second, he goes to Philippi in chapters 15 and 18 through Acts. And Paul's last missionary journey is Acts 18 through 20. Paul's then arrested in Acts 21. He goes to Rome in Acts 28. And it is here in two years where Paul writes his prison epistles. Philippians is one of those. So the question is, could you have joy in a prison? Well, Paul had no problem, right? Could you have joy in bad circumstances? I fear that most of us are held captive by our emotions on this tilt-a-whirl that we call life. So today I want to give you, to combat that, three descriptions of a Christian to sustain our joy, even in a prison like where Paul was. So if you go back to Philippians chapter 1, let's, let's leap in. The first thing is that we are, the first description is we are slaves of Christ Jesus. We are slaves of Christ. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. Paul identifies himself and him and Timothy primarily as a servant. The actual word literally says a slave. So though Paul is in actual Roman chains, he knows that 
in reality, he is chained to Jesus Christ. No matter where he is, he's a slave to Christ. The Greek word is doulos, where it's slave. Um, well, then why is our Bible put servant? Maybe yours puts bond servant, maybe it puts servant. Uh, English translators are trying to do us a favor so you don't think of slavery in our country because this is nothing like us. They're trying to, hey, it, it, don't think about that. It's not that. It's much different. It's a different kind of slavery. So that's why they typically translate servant for your, for, for your help to not stumble. But a slave is one who does the will of his master. There are not two wills, master of a slave and master of a servant. There's one will and yours doesn't matter if you are a slave. You do your master's bidding. You love his will. You follow his plans, etc. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this, that you are not your own. That's what Paul is saying, right? I'm a slave. I'm not my own. If you remember the, the catechism questions at all, the first one is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but I belong to God. That's the answer. That's Paul's hope here. His highest joy and freedom is that he's owned by Christ. The freest people in the world are those who are slaves to Jesus. It's ironic, isn't it? That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus' chains are true freedom. His, his will is truly life. His power is true power. Uh, John MacArthur once said, I am a free man, the slave of Christ. But in America, we have something different in mind. Oftentimes, we have bought in the lie that every person in the world is truly free, especially in America. Yes, you can do whatever you want. We all understand that. Buy what kind of car you want, shop where you want, eat what you want. We, we understand that. But we, that has, I think, flooded how we think about how unbelieving people actually are, that their will is free. They can do whatever they want. There's no slavery. Uh, their, their freed will is free. There's no problems with it. They have mastery over their own heart. But the Bible says something different. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, so namely, everyone, who practices sin is a what to sin? You're a slave. You're not free, right? Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19, For whatever, whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. So therefore, we are not born truly free, right? We have a will, yes, but we are, we are all willing captives to sin, to our own hearts. We do what our hearts say. We don't have control over them. We are enslaved to our hearts. Now, we may choose our shackles, right? Some people are slaves to, to alcohol, slaves to money, slaves to pride, slaves to pornography, slaves to greed, you name it, but you're shackled. Right? You're, you're not really free if you're an unbeliever. You're chained. You're chained to sin, Satan, and the world's desires. There's a picture in Pilgrim's Progress about uh, when Christiana, so it's part two, uh, when she goes to the interpreter's house, which is basically, it's, it's like going to a church and hearing something explained. That's what that this idea is. And she sees a man with a muckrake. Do you know what a muckrake is? Well, it's a rake, and he's raking all, these, all this mud and sticks and uh, straw on the ground. And in the picture, all he's doing is looking downward. He's, he's raking mud, not looking up, just continually raking. And above him stood a man with a celestial crown and offered to trade the crown for his muckrake. I'll trade you anytime. You just, you want this crown, you take it. But the man neither looked up nor regarded the offer. All he could do was gather sticks and straw and mud. Do you see the picture there? That's a picture of who man is, right? The muckrake is... 
Josh John Bunny explains in his book, the muckrake is man's sinful mind. We're always looking down, meaning man's nature is to look away from God no matter what. He can offer all he wants. I like my muckrake. I like my straw. I like my grass. It's amazing that the good things of the world, John Bunny says, it's just like mud. The things that you want as an unbeliever, it's basically mud. It's garbage. It is only through the word of the gospel and the inward work of the Holy Spirit that we are set free from our muckrakes of sin and lawlessness and we become lovers of Christ. And that is why Paul here in Roman chains, he was a happy slave to Christ. He knew his entire life was bound to Jesus. Wherever he goes, he is on his master's land. So the good news is you as a Christian are not your own. You're not a slave to your circumstances. You're not a slave to things around you. You're not even a slave to your own sin. You're a slave to Christ. So wherever you are, you belong to him. Your ident- he is your identity. He is your acceptance. Even on the sickbed, in prison, at work, at home, you are first and primarily a slave to Christ. You belong to him. Isn't that good news? There's a story of a preacher in the 300s named John Chrysostom, and he was brought before the Roman Empire uh, to be accused of being a Christian, which was illegal, as you can probably imagine. And they threatened to banish him from the land. Get out. And this is the conversation that's recorded for us. You will be banished, John replies. You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the emperor. No, you can't. My life is hidden with Christ in God. I will take away your treasure, replied the emperor. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there also. I will drive you away from man. You shall have no friend left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. That's the Christian life, isn't it? No matter what, I have Christ. We are slaves to Christ. Number two, we are saints in Christ Jesus. Look at verse one again. So Paul now, so Paul identifies him and Timothy as slaves of Christ. So Paul's in prison. We think Timothy wasn't in prison now. More likely he was kind of Paul's Mediator going between the church of Philippi and dropping off letters. If you look at chapter two, that definitely seems to be clear. But now Paul addresses those who are in Philippi. So secondly, we are saints in Christ Jesus. We are saints. Look at verse one. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Very simple. Who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So all Christians, regardless of when they came to Christ, how old they are, how far along they are, where they came from, all are saints in Christ, from the members to the leaders in the church, right? There is no, no such thing as a second-class Christian in the Bible. You are a saint. So you don't have to call me Saint Kale. Please don't do that. It feels weird. But in a sense, you are Saint so-and-so. You are. The Bible says you are a saint. Not just those who have statues made. All believers are saints. What is a saint? Well, the The word means holy, it means set apart. So to all the set apart ones in Christ, you see all the holy ones in Christ who are at Philippi, it's referring to believers, right? Paul calls them saints. Notice also that Paul addresses the overseers, which is the elders or the pastors, you can say, and the deacons. Uh, A word of encouragement that maybe you didn't know that is worth knowing uh, for what churches look like. So the typical model in a church Every time the word uh, pastor or uh, deacon, especially pastor here, but deacons is used in the Bible, it's plural. 
So when Paul writes the letter in Thessalonica, he's not saying to the pastor and the deacons or to the pastors and that one deacon who just kind of by himself. So the biblical model is ideally there is plural pastors and plural deacons. That's the model that God hopes for churches to aim for. That just, just it's a side. I think it's good to mention, well, why is it plural? Well, because they assume at some point there's going to be another one. That's, that's the idea here. But we are all saints, pastors. And deacons are on the same spiritual level as the newest baby Christian. Isn't that encouraging? But what do the Christians of Philippi look like? Do they have godly homes? Do they have godly mothers like we talked about today? Do they have great things? Well, if you've got your Bibles, go back to Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11. We're going to go through these, the three first converts in Philippi rather quickly. But I want you to see who is Paul referring to? Are they these and they got it all together. They're pretty good guys. Or are they just, what are they? Because this is the beginning of the church. It's the, the Philippi dream team. Let's see if you'd pick them or not. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11 through 15, we see the first convert. Her name is Lydia. Lydia is the first convert in Europe. So if you, if you look in the section, we see that they go not to a synagogue because there is not one there. Look at verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, we suppose there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So there's, in Jewish law, you need, I think it was 10 Jewish men to have a a gathering, an actual synagogue. There's not one, so they find a prayer group of women outside by the river. That's where Paul goes. Lydia is described as a wealthy woman from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple, purple goods, which is the color for Roman togas. So if you're Lydia, you're making some serious dough. Everlax was Roman purple togas. And she was a Gentile worshiper. So if you look, it says she was a worshiper of God. That means that she wasn't Jewish, but she kind of went, okay, I know who Yahweh is. I heard the name, but I'm not Jewish, but I, I think I can maybe figure that out. So she, she's not a believer, but she kind of is on the right track, you could say, but she's still an unbeliever, right? And look at verse 14. What does Paul do? Well, one day, when you heard us was a woman named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So though she had knowledge of the true God, she had to have her heart opened by the Lord. She was not born again. This is what we mean by men are slaves, right? They they can listen all day, but they need their hearts opened, right? Man's heart is naturally barricaded to the gospel. I mean, we can hear it all day. It's just going to bounce off, right? It's barricaded. It's barred. It's locked. So God, in Lydia's case, overcomes. He just opens her heart. This is what we call being born again, right? God gives you a new heart. He opens your heart so you understand. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3? Unless you are born again, you cannot see, right? So being born again, having a new heart, then you understand the gospel. It's not vice versa. It's God does a work and then you understand it. Then you lands in your heart. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Regarding this passage, she did not open her own heart. Her prayers did not do it. Paul did not even do it. The Lord himself must open the heart to receive the things which make for peace. He alone can put the key into the hole and open the door and get admittance himself. Isn't this good news? That the gospel preaching, the work you do, maybe as a mother to your children, the the telling them of Christ, the things you do for your grandkids, the speaking of people about the gospel outside, well, they're not getting converted. Well, do you have the key to their heart? No, you don't. But you trust that the Lord can open a heart. It's the good news. 
Look at verses 16 through 18 here. So, that's, so the first convert in Europe, the first Philippian convert is Lydia, a woman of purple, selling of purple goods. Look at verse 16 through 18. After this happens, there's chaos. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, so they're going to the same place. Hey, it happened great last time. Let's go again and preach to these people here. They met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. In the original language, the very first word it says in verse 16 is, it happened. So it's, as soon as there was a great conversion, Luke says, evil happened. I mean, almost immediately, there's evil right nearby. Seems very, very true, isn't it? Immediate spiritual opposition. It says that she had a spirit of divination, which I was like, what in the world does that mean? If you, uh, It actually means a spirit of python, so like a snake. So this is like a, a Greek mythology reference that Paul is talking about. This is a slithering snake that could weasel its way into things. It, was, it began to later refer to demonic forces and kind of like someone who looks like a ventriloquist who's, who's having someone speak from them. So this is a demonic voice likely coming from this woman, something very terrifying. She's a medium, so she was in touch with satanic powers and demons. Now, we don't think those things is, is, exist now maybe because we're kind of like, ah, it's just different culture. This stuff certainly exists. There are demonic forces. People do have demonic influence. This is real. And she was a terrifying moneymaker. If you look at this, she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So she was not only terrifying, she was good at her job. She was evil. So that just reminds you that even unbelievers, even demons, if you look what happens next, even they know the gospel. Look at verse 17. She followed Paul and us, so Luke and Silas and Timothy, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Is that demon right? Darn tootin' she's right. Right? Even, even demons know truth, right? But they're not trusting in Christ. That's the difference. So even unbelievers can have head knowledge, but their hearts are open like Lydia. It's just, it's nothing, right? And yet she's probably Paul's greatest source of drawing a crowd. If you were seeing some demon-possessed girl yell at some guy, wouldn't you be like, oh, what's going on over there? Get your phone out and go look, right? It's a huge crowd gathering. And what does Paul do? It's probably my favorite uh, little word in this portion. And this kept, and this she kept doing for many days, verse 18, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Enough, woman. Knock it off. Right? He cast the demon out, right? Just I like seeing Paul get annoyed. I've had enough, right? And just demon stop. I just I love that. This demonic screaming for many days and Paul commands. So what Satan and evil men meant for evil, God meant for good. And now she is a, a trophy of God's grace. Look at verses 19 through 24. This is a long section. We're going to speed very quickly through it. So after this happened, look at verse 19. Her owners of the slave girl, they see that their hope of gain was gone. Well, there goes our income. So who do you go after? The the slave girl? Nope. You go after Paul and Silas. If you read, you read this maybe later this afternoon, Paul and Silas are dragged. They are brought to the authorities, government, right? Uh, The people mob them. They are attacked. They are beaten with rod verses 19 through 22 they are ordered beat them with rod just a reminder that rome was not a friend of christianity they didn't care that the state did not care about christians in verse 25 through 34 they are thrown into prison right about midnight paul and Silas, verse 25 were praying and singing hymns to god and the prisoners were listening so they're like little songbirds they're we're in prison but we're still happy right they're just 
Because they know. They know who Christ is. Singing and praying. There's an earthquake. And look at verses 27 through 34. This is good for you to see. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoner had, had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights. So I'm guessing he turned on the... the he, turned, he must have flicked a switch, right? No, he'd probably fire. Turned lights on. He came in, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell in before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out. And he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour that the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So this is just another work of conversion. There's terror, right? He experiences terror, and he cries out the very simple question, what must I do to be saved? So for an unbeliever, what must you do to be saved? You don't have to perform. You can't do enough good. You can't win it. You can't solve it. You believe upon Christ and you will be saved. Everyone in your house, if they do that too, they get converted. That's what Paul is saying. So you hear the word of the Lord, the next verse Paul talks about, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they're baptized and there's rejoicing, right? That's simple conversion. So and so go back to Philippians chapter one. In Philippians one, Paul can look at these people. So think about who these people are. Would you befriend a person who used to be a demonic slave girl? Any hands raising on that one? Nobody, huh? Would you, would you befriend this? I mean, these jailers, they're ruthless people. They're not just like, you know, got a 401k. This guy's probably a jerk and he's ruthless and he's strong and scary and mean. Or maybe Lydia, she's, maybe she's, kind of, she's kind of a fashionista. Maybe she's kind of prudish. She's kind of snarky. She's got all this money in a nice house. But Paul can look at all of the Philippians 1 and call them all brothers. He calls them holy ones. So what makes the difference between these sinners and saints? The question that you need to answer well this morning is, what makes you holy? If these three people, all different backgrounds, none of them had good backgrounds that we consider good backgrounds, what makes them saints? Well, look at Philippians chapter 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. It is not that which is in us, but who we're united to by faith. It's by faith alone that God marries us to Christ, right? He weds us to him. We are one with Jesus. We talk about marriage being one flesh union, right? Well, with Christ, we are one with him. Colossians chapter three, verse three says, your, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not your own. So here's the good news of the gospel. All that Jesus is, you are now counted by faith. Did you hear that? The holiness of Christ, the righteousness, his purity are all given to you freely. You don't have to perform anymore. It's done. You don't have to try to impress the Lord because you can't. Christ did it for you. He's taken away your unholiness, your unrighteousness, your impurity, and gives you his Sons, if that's not good news to walk with this week, I don't know what is, friends. I'll be up front. I have no clue what else is better news than that. That in Christ, he sees you as holy as Christ is. What makes us holy is God's work in the gospel applied to us by the Holy Spirit who makes a holy people, right? 
So God does not see you, friends, and identify you by your occupation, by your health, by your age, by your circumstances, by your race, by your ability, by whatever you want to say. Rather, God sees you in Christ and you are holy, one with Christ. This is the most defining quality about you. Not that I used to be a slave girl, not that I used to be demonic, not that I used to be a jailer. It doesn't matter anymore. You are holy in Christ, 100% holy, credited to you by faith. Isn't that good news? See why Paul is such a joy right now? <laughs> Who cares where I'm at? I'm a saint. You're a saint, right? Who cares? Oh, man. In Christ, then you are a saint. Satisfies God for you. So what must I do to be saved? Well, we are commanded to see ourselves as sinners, not saints, as fallen, not upright, as corrupt in God's sight. And then we repent, trust in Christ, and God says, saint. And just automatically gives you righteousness by faith. Just stunning, stunning news. There's to remind us that in Philippi, that if they didn't come to God, God sent Paul, right? So we must go. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. God seeks sinners. God arranges conversions. God does the heavy lifting. God opens the heart. God sends the gospel so that God gets all the glory. So first, we see that we are slaves in Christ. Second, that we are saints in Christ. Third, we are sons with Christ. And it's a two-step process. Very simple here. I hope you'll see this. The first step is we receive grace from God. Look at verse 2. Paul says, grace to you. So grace must precede peace, right? It's not peace and grace. It's grace then peace, right? Grace must be the firstborn of God's affection towards you before you have peace with him. God's grace springs from his own heart. For grace to be free, it must be grace. It can't be demanded, right? Grace has to be free. The Bible calls God continually a God who is gracious and merciful. Paul calls the gospel the gospel of grace in Acts chapter 20. This is God's unmerited freedom towards sinners, right? Think of a a president or a governor parting a a death row criminal. This is grace. He doesn't have to, but he can if he wants to. He's free to do that. This is the work we see in the early church. And it opened Lydia's heart. It freed the slave girl, saved the prisoner. All of us must see that apart from the grace of God, we would not be willing to open our hearts, right? That's, that's why we rely upon the Lord. The jailer wasn't going to figure it out. The slave girl was not going to figure it out. Lydia was not going to figure it out. It's the grace of God. It makes us willing. It changes our hearts and enables us to love the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Um, maybe you've heard this before. I didn't create this. I stole it from someone else. You probably stole it from, from, from somebody else. But grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is pretty much dynamite. That's the gospel right there, right? That he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 talk about how Jesus fulfilled the law for us. In us, bearing our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. God's grace upon you as a Christian makes the Niagara Falls look like a trickling stream. Every day you receive grace upon grace. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
So the simple, simple truth is if we've received this much grace, how can we not be gracious towards others? Towards those who don't, well, Kale, they don't deserve it. Well, don't you see that's what grace is? Isn't the point? Bless those who curse you, pray for your enemies, associate with the lowly, never repay evil for evil. All of these are acts of grace because of God's grace towards us. That's what Christians do, right? Because of the grace. Second step, very short. We have peace with God. Verse two, and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of the grace of God, God's enemies are God's enemies who once were his enemies and children of the devil. The Bible says that before we are Christians, we are children of the devil. First John chapter three, verse 10. So God must adopt us in Christ through the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus pays the adoption fee, you could say. Romans chapter five, verse one now says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So as a Christian, God has no hostility towards you. He treats you as a son. This means that there is no condemnation, no anger, Never once in your Christian life does God say, come on, would you hurry up and impress me? You, you, you're terrible today. Never once do you hear that because of Christ. You have peace with God. It's present tense. You have it. You actually have it currently right now forever. He treats you as his spotless son, as he treats Christ. There's a hymn that says this. Tis everlasting peace, sure as Jehovah's name. To stable at his steadfast throne forevermore the same. My love is oftentimes low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. No change Jehovah knows. Your peace is not bound to anything but Christ. And he's never going to change. To close here, perhaps you don't feel that you have peace with God. Maybe you feel uneasy. I think today we, we did Psalm 32 about feeling, oh, my sin is just, just cutting my bones up. It's just like agony and this groaning within. You feel restless. Oftentimes, unconfessed sin festers the bones, as Psalm 32 says. If you're a Christian resting upon the work of Christ, you have one who remains faithful for the ways that you don't. Jesus is the faithful covenant keeper. We are the unfaithful covenant breakers. Maybe, do you know the, the story of Hosea and Gomer in the Bible? The prophet Hosea marries a harlot. Forgot to show, uh, I'm like Hosea. You guys are like Gomer. You guys are a harlot. You know, you're not faithful to me ever. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel, that you are covenant breakers. You don't keep your word. You do sit and fall short but you have a faithful covenant keeper. So therefore, the Bible says to confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus purchased all that's necessary to forgive you and to cleanse you. You have peace with God. Don't look at your sin. Give it up. Look to Christ. Rest and enjoy the peace you have. And then as the Bible says, go and sin no more, right? Go free, because you are free. This is the good news of Paul that permeates every line of Paul's letter to Philippians. I hope you'll see that joy is bound to Christ. Let's pray.